0: be seated and thank you so much for being here and worship today and if you're watching us online thank you as well as uh, as well as those who are in the overflow room Um, and I do want to thank our worship team for leading while Eric was out today they did um, such a great job and just appreciate their their commitment Uh, so most of you know that we have in our home two sons and two daughters Um, having two daughters over the years we have had lots of baby dolls In our house, uh, as our daughters have aged, most of those baby dolls have gone on to other places. The ones that were abused, that were headless or armless or legless, went in the trash. Others went to Goodwill or to the Rescue Mission box. However, we still have a few um, remaining baby dolls. One of those I brought with me this morning, this particular baby doll is called a Baby Alive Baby doll. Now, if you have young daughters, you may know about the Baby Alive Baby Doll. This is a genius idea that someone at Hasbro came up with because this particular baby doll actually will drink real juice from a bottle that they will sell to you and as well will eat baby food that they will sell to you. You'll notice this particular baby doll has. Some gunk around its mouth that I was unable to get off before I came up this morning. That stains from the baby food that we purchased to go into the baby's mouth. And so this baby will eat like a real baby. Now, I know exactly what you're thinking. Where does that juice and where does that food go? That's what makes this a genius creation. I hope the person at Hasbro that came up with this idea. Got a huge promotion because they sell as well little Baby Alive baby diapers that you put onto the baby because when the food goes through the baby, when the juice goes through the baby, it comes out onto the diaper and then you have to change the baby's diaper just like a real diaper. Now I will tell you it is a pure joy compared to a real diaper because stink is not involved in the changing of this diaper. However, you take this diaper, you throw it away and then you have to put a new diaper on and when you run out of diapers you go back to the toy store and you buy more of these diapers for the Baby Alive diaper. What a great idea. Now I have a confession for you this morning. This is not a real Baby Alive baby doll. You see our daughter who was probably 3 at the time watched a television television commercial and she saw a Baby Alive baby doll and she came to us and said, I want that. I've got to have that. I need that. My life will not be complete unless I have this Baby Alive baby doll. And so we got online and discovered that a Hasbro Baby Alive baby doll is over $100. Well, we decided, no way. We can go a lot cheaper than that. It's very similar to when I was in high school and all the cool kids wore polo, Ralph and polo. And my parents bought Knights of the Round Table shirts. Anyone remember that? Yeah, it kind of almost looks like a man on a polo horse with a polo stick until you get up close and it's really a night with a lance. You know, it's not the same, but it's a third of the price. And so my parents said, that's good enough for you, you know. We did the same thing to our kids. Hey, i got to have this Baby Alive baby doll. It's over $100. We bought the cheap knockoff. I think it was called Baby Almost Breathing Baby doll. I'm, I'm not sure. The reason I tell you that is... The real Baby Alive baby doll, not the cheap knockoff, but the real one actually will talk and laugh and move. And so if you happen to observe someone who had a real Baby Alive baby doll, you might for a moment think it was real, that it was a real child. If you saw one of these from a distance, from several yards away or some distance away from across the room, you might look and go, oh, look, there's a real baby. It's eating, it's crying, it's talking, it's cooing, even changing the diaper. You might look and go, why is a three-year-old taking care of this little baby? That's odd. Only when you got up close and you felt it and you saw it would you be able to go, oh, that's just plastic. That's not a real kid. That's not a child. And, And if you open this plastic baby doll up, you would find just electronic parts and plastic, not flesh and blood, not a beating heart. Here's why I share all of this with you. We are continuing a series today called Verified, where we are talking about what it means to be a true follower of Christ. And if you've been here with us, you know that we have said that in our country that still the majority of people claim to be Christian. However, for many of them, it is just a label. It's part of their tradition. It's part of their family upbringing. It's just part of the culture. They say they're a Christian, but they've never had a life-changing experience with Jesus Christ. They might look like it. They might sound like it. They may talk like a Christian. They may dress like a Christian. They may appear to be Christian, but inside... It's just a bunch of plastic parts and electronic parts. It's not real flesh and blood. They appear like a fake baby doll. They appear to be a Christian, but it's not real. And so in this series, we're talking about what does it mean to be a true follower of Christ. And our guide for this particular series is a book called 1 John. It's found in your New Testament. If you've got a Bible and you'd like to turn there, it's uh, towards the end after 2 Peter, before 2 John. 1 John was written by John the Apostle. Uh, John the Apostle was one of the closest companions of Jesus. Uh, John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. John eventually made his way to Ephesus, where he pastored the church in Ephesus. And he wrote this letter that we call 1 John for a very specific reason. The reason he wrote it, was that a heresy known as Gnosticism had invaded the churches around Ephesus. Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis, which is the Greek word for knowledge. Here's why they were called Gnostics. Gnostics believed that they had acquired a special, deeper knowledge about God and about spiritual things, and through this knowledge they were able to acquire salvation. Now there are a lot of different strains of Gnosticism, there are a lot of different branches of what they believed, but at the core Gnostics believed that the material world is evil and the spiritual world is good. What they did is they divided the spiritual from the physical and they said, That an individual could be saved, could have a relationship with God, could spiritually be doing everything right, but physically do whatever they wanted to do because one did not affect the other. And so Gnostics were known for uh, having a lot of immorality because they said the physical just didn't matter. It's the spiritual that counted. So John wrote this particular letter to the churches around Ephesus to help them understand the difference between what was right and what was wrong. And he wrote this letter to identify the three things that are necessary for someone who is a verified follower of Christ. In this letter, he says it takes right beliefs, right beliefs about Jesus, right beliefs about who Jesus was, right beliefs about the things that Jesus did. We've talked about that. The second is right actions. And so you can't say you're a follower of Christ and then live exactly how you want to live. Just say, well, it doesn't matter what my moral choices are if you're a follower of Christ. And then thirdly, right love. So someone who is a follower of Christ will exhibit the right love towards others. Now John hits these first two, right beliefs and right actions, directly attacking what the Gnostics were saying and doing. However he also hits right love because that was such an important deal to John. John, throughout the gospel of John and throughout his letters, over and over and over says, for those who are followers of Christ, we need to be intentional about loving one another well. Back last January, just before COVID hit our nation, I had the chance to go to Greece and to go to Corinth uh, to uh, research that city and to do a study that we were um, looking at as a church in 1 Corinthians. And so while I was there I had a guide who was a, a historian who knew a whole lot about Greek culture and um, about the Greek cities, these ancient Greek cities. And so we we spent a lot of time talking and he was very passionate about the Greek influence on the New Testament. That the New Testament was written largely by those who were Jewish. However, they wrote these books in a Greek culture and the Greek philosophy had a major influence on on what they wrote. And so we were talking about the fact that John pastored in Ephesus, which at that time was part of the Greek culture. And according to historians, John lived to to be in his 90s. He was the oldest living apostle. He was the only one who wasn't uh, martyred uh, for his faith in Christ. And according to our guide, he said that Historians have said that John, um, as a very old man, was pastoring this church. He was the last living apostle. He got to the point that he couldn't walk anymore. He got to the point that his voice was raspy. He could barely speak. But as the last person on earth who had spent time with Jesus, the church wanted to hear from him. And so leaders in the church would have John sit in a chair, and they would pick him up, and they would place him on a platform where he could speak to the congregation. And with this raspy voice, barely able to talk, he would say to those who had gathered over and over, love one another, love one another, love one another. I mean, it's apparent when you read his letters that it was the theme of his life, that we need to do a great job at loving one another. In chapter 3, John answers two questions about this. Number one, practically speaking, what does loving one another look like? That's question one. The second question he answers is, how can I love the person I really don't love? How is it I can love someone that's really hard to love? So John answers both of these in this passage. Again, if you've got your Bible, look at uh, 1 John chapter 3, and we'll start with verse 1. This is what John wrote. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now that we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So John starts this section by talking about the greatest identity of your life if you're a follower of Christ. For those of you who have accepted Christ, this is your primary identity. You are a child of God. Notice how John begins with a sense of excitement and passion. Look what great love the Father has lavished on us. And because of this, we are children of God. We are part of the family of God. And then he just repeats that. He's so excited. He says, and that is what we are. We get to be a part of the family of God. We are children of the eternal King. And that, more than anything else, should define your life. Think about all the labels that you get in life. All the ways that you are identified by others. Or all the ways that you identify yourself. Think about if you've had great success in life. Let's say, for example, that you are a sports superstar. When people talk about you, they will say, oh, she is a great softball player. The best on the team. He's a great Baseball player or basketball player. When he's in the game, we're always going to win. He's a scratch golfer. Be sure to get some strokes if you play with him. He's incredible. I mean, you are known as a phenomenal athlete. Or let's say that maybe your thing is you're an intellectual, smartest one in the class. Everybody knows it. Straight A's all the way through. In fact, you finished this year with a 102. Point grade average 102 in the class how do you do that you can't do that it is logically impossible to master 102 percent of the material but somehow you manage to do it because you're just that smart and when people talk about you they'll say well he, he's going to get into any grad school he wants you know she's going wherever she wants to go she's that smart maybe your label is you're just successful Everything you do in life, everything you touch, you've got the golden touch. It always goes your way. And everybody talks about you and they say, man, he is just so successful in everything he does. Or maybe it's your career. You're defined by your job. Maybe it's that you're a lawyer or banker or teacher or some other job. And when people think about you, they're like, oh, that's it. It's what he does. It's what she does. It's their career. And when they look at you, that's the label they put on you. That's the identity that they put on you. Or that's how you identify yourself. When you think of who you are, you say, this is who I am. Or maybe the labels that have been attached to you or the way you view yourself aren't so good. Maybe they're things that you're not proud of. Maybe, in fact... It's rebel. When people talk about you, they say, you know, he's going to break the rules. Always get in trouble. Troublemaker at school, troublemaker in life. Always, always just rebelling against everything. Or, or maybe it's the fact that you're lazy. That's a label that's been applied to you. And people say, he won't come through. She, she just she, she won't carry out what she says she's going to carry out. She is a procrastinator at best and won't get it done at worst. Or or maybe your label is you're you're a failure. You've attempted and failed and attempted and failed. And maybe you view yourself that way now and you won't try anything else because this label's been stuck to you. Or or maybe it's unfaithful. People say, "You, you just can't trust him. You just can't trust her. She won't come through. And maybe these labels have been applied to your life and this is how you identify yourself. When you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, this is how you view yourself. Whether it's good or bad, here's what John is saying. If you are a follower of Christ, this is not the way you should view yourself. More than anything else, you are a child of the King. More than anything else, you are a child of of God, and that's the most important thing about you. And here's why. Let's say that, that one of these successful, good labels is primarily how you view yourself. You've placed your hope in it. It's what, it's what excites you. It's, it's how you think of yourself. It's, it's what drives you in life. It's why you get up in the morning. It's your career or it's success and whatever venture you're you know, taking on right now. It's it's the game, it's the practice for the game, or it's it's the next test, it's going to class. Whatever it is, it's the successful thing, and that is how you identify yourself. If that is the case, the greatest enemy of your life is a little six-letter word called change. Because right now, it's what drives you. Right now, it's what makes you happy. Right now, it's how you identify yourself However, it will change. There is a reason that none of the players on the Atlanta Braves are 60 years old. Why? Because we change. Physical lives change. And even if this does not change, now in this life there will come a time that you take your last breath on this earth. And that will most definitely change. Now let's say it's one of these labels here. The greatest friend you have is a little six-letter word called change. Because all of these are temporary. All of these are fading away. But if you are a follower of Christ, your forever reality is a child of the king. Part of the family of God. A child of the eternal God. John starts off this section of the letter to say, this is who you are. More than anything else, this is the person that you are. You're a child of God. Now, he does that for a very specific reason. God has lavished this love on us. He has invited us into his family. He has made us his children, and he's done that for us. And this should then dictate how we love others. Because we've experienced this incredible love of God, it then translates into how we love others. Here's what he talks about next. Go to verse 11. Here's what John wrote. For this is a message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. So John here references an account from Genesis chapter 4 where we read about the first murder in human history. Uh, If you will, just place a finger on 1 John and go back to the beginning of your Bible. Go to Genesis 4. We're going to read this brief account of the murder between two brothers, the sons of Adam and Eve. Uh, We'll start with verse 2. Here's what we read. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. By the way, at that point in history, those were the only two career options. It was either wash the animals or tend the soil. That was it. No other options were available. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Okay, so understand this in the story. It wasn't that the Lord was just flippantly rejecting Cain's offering while accepting Abel's. It wasn't that at all. God had commanded these brothers to bring the first and the best of what they produced to him as a sacrifice, as a way of reminding them that everything they had came from God. Cain came before the Lord with his leftovers. Abel came before the Lord with his best. In that day, fat portions were considered to be the, the very uh, best part of the meat. And so Abel came and he brought his first and his best to God and sacrificed that before God Cain came and brought his leftovers and God rejected Cain's offering. Cain was angry at God and he was angry at his brother Abel because God loved Abel but did not love Cain and had rejected his offering. So God here sees the anger of Cain and what he does is he shoots a warning shot across the bow of Cain's life and says, be careful. This anger will consume you. It is like a tiger crouched at your door, ready to pounce on you, and he will destroy your life if you do not get, get a con, uh, control of this emotion. Cain, get it under control and quickly. Cain, however, did not listen to the advice of God, which is something that is never a good idea. Look at verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This is the first murder that's recorded in human history. And it happened between two brothers. One was angry with the other. One hated the other, not because of anything that Abel had done to Cain, but because Abel sacrificed a good sacrifice to God. God accepted that sacrifice And Cain hated him for it. This is the reason that John makes this reference. Cain and Abel became archetypes of the two groups of people that are in the world. There are those who are part of the family of God. And there are those who are not. There are those who are loved by God. And there are those who are outside of God's love. And because of this, because of this, One group will hate the other. There's an ancient targum on this particular passage. Uh, A targum was an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible that also gave commentary that relied on the oral tradition and it would fill in some of the gaps. And this particular ancient targum quoted Cain as saying these words. There is no judgment. There is no judge. There is no other world. There is no gift of good reward for the righteous and no punishment for the wicked. In other words, Cain was not just angry with Abel, but Cain was very much outside of the family of God. And John highlights this to say that if Cain hated Abel, then we should not be surprised when those in the world hate us as well. In fact, look at verse 13. This is exactly what he says. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Evidently, word had gotten to John that there were new believers in these churches around Ephesus, and they became followers of Christ, and then their former friends had rejected them. Those in their society had rejected them. Those in their community who were not followers of Christ hated them, simply because they were following Christ. And they were surprised. And word got to John that they were saying, We can't believe this. These people who are my friends, and they were my business associates, and they were in this club with me. Now they have rejected me simply because I'm following Christ. And John says, Do not be surprised if the world hates you. Cain hated Abel, and they were flesh and blood. These guys were brothers, and Cain hated Abel, Because Abel was part of the family of God. And if that was true all the way at the beginning, it continues to be true now. The world will hate you because of your following of Christ. Now he does this. John gives this heads up to these Christians, not just to teach them about persecution, but rather as a contrast to what he wrote about next. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who, does not remain, anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So throughout this series, we've talked about the reason that John wrote this letter. And he wrote it so that Christians living around Ephesus would understand what it took to be a true, verified follower of Christ. There are all these false teachings, all these false ideas, and they're trying to separate what is fact from fiction, what is true from what is false. And so John says, remember, it takes right beliefs. Remember, it takes a changed moral life. But as well, it takes loving one another. I mean, likely someone came along and asked John, hey, John, you were with Jesus. You spent three years with Jesus while he was on earth. And now there are all these ideas that are floating around about what it takes to be a Christian. There are all these different teachings that we're hearing out there about what it means to have salvation. So, John, we need you to help us with this. You are with Jesus. You should know what is right and what is wrong. John, answer this question for me. How can we know that we have gone from death to life? John says, I'll tell you, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Wait a second, John. Is that like just an option? I mean, is this a, a, a negotiable? Is this just, just one part of being a follower of Christ that, you know, you can take it or leave it? Like, is this really true, John? Is this, is this something that really, really matters? Well, yeah, anyone. Who does not love remains in death. Okay, John, I'm still having trouble here understanding if you're really serious about this. I mean, just can you you clarify it for me? Is loving one another that serious? Yes. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. John here is super clear. Those who are verified followers of Christ will love others who are followers of Christ. Now, you can also make the argument from Scripture that we are to love those who are outside of the family of God. And that is true. However, John is not talking about that here. Here, John is referring to specifically to how Christians should love one another. And he finishes this section with a little more um, detail on this. Look at verse 16. So here John turns back and answers those two questions that we asked at the beginning of our time. First question was this. Practically speaking, what does loving one another look like? And here John answers that question. It is more than words. It is more than a feeling. It is more than good intentions. It is so much more than simply saying, oh, of course I love them. Oh, of course I love here." It is how we practically treat one another. It's how we treat one another in our actions. It's how we treat one another and what we say to them. And it is how we treat one another and what we say about each other. John here says, those who've experienced the love of Christ will love well those who are members of the family of God. I get all kinds of emails about what's going on in the church world. Just as a pastor, it's one of these things I need to keep up with. And so throughout my week, I'll get different emails talking about what's going on in the wider Christian world. And one of the things that's been true for years is that we in the United States are seeing 7,000 Protestant churches a year close their doors forever to never reopen. They just don't have enough people coming. Uh, There's not enough there to run the ministry, to pay for utilities, to pay for the building. Uh, For whatever reason, 7,000 churches a year close their doors and never reopen. By the way, that is a pre-COVID-19 statistic. Some are estimating that post-COVID-19 that that will move to 10,000 Protestant churches a year that will close their doors forever. Now, many of these churches, when they're asked, well, you know, what happened and Why did people quit coming, and why did it get to this point that the church just died? What happened? They will point to the culture, and they will say, well, people just aren't interested in church anymore. The next generation coming along, they're just not as committed. The older generation, the builders and the boomers, they were more committed to church, but the Gen Xers and the Millennials and the Gen Zers, they're just not all that interested in church. And there's some truth to that, and that's part of it, but when when these who were studying it, would do a deep dive into these churches, what they would discover was this. In these churches, the reason these churches died was because those in the church did a poor job loving one another. They could typically trace it back to some major church fight, some major disagreement, the way people treated one another. And outsiders would come to this church and they would see what was happening and how Uh, how the members were treating one another, and they would say, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want anything to do with that. Or what has really happened is that over time, the children of those growing up in the church would observe how Christians treated one another, how the adults treated one another, and they said something like this. When I get out of this house, when I am on my own, when I get to make my own decision about church, I'm not going. Because if Christians treat each other like that, I don't want any part of it. And in fact, studies have shown that millennials and Gen Zers, many of them are fine with God. Many of them are fine with Jesus. But they don't want a thing to do with church. And when you dig down deep and you ask them, many of them will say, I don't like the way people in church treat one another. John here says this should not be, that as followers of Christ, as all of us are part of the family of God, we should love each other well, not just saying it, not not just something that, that, that is a good intention or a good feeling, but in practically how we do it, we should love each other well. The second question that John answers in this passage is, how can I love the person I really don't love? You see, my guess is most of us in here, we are we are fine with generally loving those who come in a very general way. And I see how you guys treat one another. I would say you're good, you're fine. You're, most of you were born in the South. You you know you're polite. You know how are you doing? How's your mama and them? Tell everybody I said hey. Be blessed. I mean, you guys say all the right words. We we know how to do that. You say. Yeah, do you love each, the people in the church? you love one another? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I tell them all the time. And I'm fine with that. Most of us are fine with generally loving in a general way. Where we get hung up is when it comes to loving him or her. That person that hurt us. That person who is hard to love. That person who absolutely drives us crazy. How do we love them? John tells us in this passage. Look at verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. When we were enemies of God, when we had rebelled against God, when we hated God, Jesus Christ went to the cross and died on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God. And John says, and we ought to lay down our lives For our brothers and sisters. In other words. The way that we love those who are hard to love. Is by spending time with God the Father. Experiencing that love. And then letting that love flow through us to others. In other words. It's not just making the decision. I'm going to love well. It's not bearing down and saying. I'm going to love by God. Even if it kills me. It is spending time with God. Experiencing the love of the Father and then letting that flow through us to others. I think a lot about this church and what I want this church to be known for and and what I want others in the community to say about Northway Church. And I think about things like I, I want this church to be known as a church that preaches the gospel. That people that come, they hear the gospel. They hear about the grace of God, that we're not legalistic or we're not... Um, a a church that's failing to preach the word of God, that we are truly preaching the gospel. I I, I would love it if people would say, hey, if you go there, you're going to hear the gospel. I, I would love it if people said, that's a church that makes a difference in the community. I mean, they have people that are working in shelters and in so many different ways that's practically making a difference in our city. I would love it for people to say, that's a church that is intentional about reaching the next generation. They've invested in their children. They've invested in their students. They want to make sure the next generation embraces the gospel. I would love for all those things to be said. But at the very top of the list, I would love for people to say, that's a church where they love one another well. That's a church where they love one another well. The only way we can do that is by running hard after Jesus. And then letting that love flow through us to one another.